Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these moments that we shared together this morning. I pray that you would help us to realize how precious they truly are. Anything that was purchased with the cost of your only Son's blood, Jesus Christ our Lord, ought to be held in highest esteem with no competitors in our hearts. So remind us of the joy. Remind us of the value of our salvation today. Lead us back to the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Forgive us for the laxness, for the laziness of heart that we sometimes fall into as we continue to plod through this life. Let the clarion call of your holy word cut through the cobwebs of our sin and show us Jesus Christ exalted and risen and reigning even as we consider you in these songs and in this message crucified for our sins. It is a victorious and almighty sufficient Savior that we worship this day. I pray, Lord, that you would remind our hearts, Lord, and remind our minds as we study your scripture of the profound reality of Jesus Christ and what he has done and what he continues to do through us and the promise of eternal life forever with all who are in Christ. And so we praise you this morning and ask that you would open our hearts to receive your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What a joy and privilege it is to share in the scriptures today and to worship together and to assemble as his beloved. I would have you turn this morning to Psalm chapter 53 with me and in a moment we'll stand for the reading of God's holy word, Psalm 53. This morning's message is entitled, Fortunes Restored. It comes from the last verse, verse 6 in Psalm 53, where there's a promise, there's an expectation to God restoring the fortunes of His people. His people in this uh, verse here are referred to as Jacob and of Israel. Of course, we know these terms are symbolic and representative of all the people of God. So as the true Israel today, as Romans declares us to be, we rejoice that in Christ our fortunes are restored. Stand with me this morning and let us read these verses together. Psalm 53, verses 1 through 6. Read along as I declare God's holy word today. The title of this morning's passage is, To the Choir Master, According to Mahalath, A Maskil of David. Verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Verse 4. Have those who work evil no knowledge? Who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame. For God has rejected them. Verse 6. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is the immutable word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
Psalm 53 is included in a set of eight psalms, it seems to me, that have a related theme. Psalms 52 through 60 are either maskils or another term, uh, miktams, and these are two technical or musical uh, identities of a different type of psalm. These psalms are included in this collection in the Psalter, extolling and encouraging us, His people, extolling the Lord, that is, and encouraging people by declaring the faithfulness and the surety of God in the midst of His people, even when His people find themselves in the midst of enemies. These masculines, again, these collection of eight psalms, 52 through 60, encourage us, the people of God, that God is faithful in our midst even when we are in the midst of enemies. Psalm 52.1 says, Why do you boast O evil, o, of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. David is declaring this word after Doeg, one of the evil ones who opposed him and had killed a multitude of people, a whole city in fact, and tens of priests has set his heart against the purpose of the Lord alongside Saul to destroy his anointed one, David. Psalm 54 says, A masculine of David in its title, When the Zephites went and told Saul, Is not David hiding among us? Again, the title of 55 is a masculine of David. And the cry in verse 1 is, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. So you see that this theme is worthy of several psalms in the Psalter. Not just these eight, but these eight are kind of specifically identified by this theme. Other times in the psalms, we get the recurring testimony of God's power even in our trial. Psalm 53 serves well, therefore, to remind us that in these kinds of circumstances, when we're facing the enemy of our souls, that we are not just facing enemies without, but indeed we are facing enemies within. As we see in Psalm 53, that there is none who does good, but they are all corrupt. That includes us, all of mankind, doing abominable iniquity. Yet there is hope even against this inward enemy. Psalm 14 is a psalm that almost lines up verbatim with Psalm 53. If we go back to that psalm, we see that almost word for word, a similar theme is declared and echoed. It is echoed, I would say, and magnified in Psalm 53. Thus, these two psalms remind us that original sin, the corruption of our nature in Adam, and our need of salvation in Jesus Christ is of utmost importance. It's a theme that is repeated in the Psalms, almost verbatim in 14 and 53, and it's a theme that is repeated throughout Scripture, as we'll see in several other places this morning. But it is indeed of utmost importance that we remember the nature of ourselves and our sinfulness, and also the nature, therefore, of our salvation. This must be impressed. It is so important. It must be impressed upon the consciousness of His people such that worship songs in the Psalter are dedicated to these truths. The transcendent perspective of these psalms, these psalms uh, identified by, uh, as masculines and, and, and mactoms, the transcendent perspective of these psalms is evident 
when dusted, if you will, by the Spirit-renewed mind. I have this picture in my mind of a forensic study trying to reveal fingerprints. It's as if, uh, if, if we would let the dust, as it were, of a Spirit-renewed mind pass over these psalms, we would see the fingerprints of divine inspiration all over them. Why? Because here we have writings from human authors that prove themselves to be uh, authored by not mere humans, but indeed the Spirit inspiring them because we see these themes of the corrupt, universal corruption of mankind and salvation in a Messiah who is yet to come many centuries later. And this reminds us, and when we read these words, we're reading the words of the Holy Spirit dictated through one like David. We read in these words, therefore, the universal diagnosis of sin and the exclusive saving prescription for those who are affected by its malady. And so in Psalm 53, let me give you a heading this morning to consider three main points. The heading is viewpoints and outcomes in Psalm 53. Two viewpoints and two outcomes. First of all, let us consider this viewpoint, God according to man. Man in his sin, what is his view of God? From the viewpoint of our fallenness, who is God to us? Psalm 53 declares as much. Secondly, this morning, let's consider the viewpoint of God as to man. What is man according to God? That is a viewpoint, of course, that is most important. That is truth. If the Word of God had not been revealed to us in truth, we would not be able to understand or to know ourselves. We would remain self-deceived and blind. But the Word of God in Psalm 53 declares who we are from God's viewpoint or from God's perspective. And finally, the third point this morning will be outcomes accordingly. And there are two outcomes let me submit to you. First of all, uh, there are those who will be scattered and destroyed on account of who they are. And secondly, there will, th there will be those who are gathered and saved on account of a fundamental change in their nature, namely salvation. First of all, let's consider God according to unregenerate or unsaved man. Consider again Psalm 53 verses 1 and 4. After the title, we have these words, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. Again, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They, that is mankind, are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. And there is none who does good. Verse 4 could be added to this for emphasis, describing the actions and the activities of these kinds of fools, this, the nature of man who says in his heart there is no God, and we read in verse 4, have those who work evil, no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God? That is, putting these two ideas together, the fool, that is all mankind in his unregenerate state, says in his heart there is no God. But beyond that, in his lack of knowledge, he sets himself upon the task of destroying, devouring, or eating up the people of God instead of calling upon the Lord for salvation. 
Who is God according to unregenerate man? Well, first of all, he denies him entirely. We see who man denies in verse 1 is the God that in one sense he knows is there. Yet he is content to be foolish and foolhardy when he says there is no God. The fool says in his heart there is no God. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 3. Where is the origin of this kind of psychosis, if you will? This kind of utter and complete uh, depravity of confession at least, where we so hate the idea of God that we are content to fight against that and to turn all our energies to opposing Him. Well, of course, the answer to that question brings us back to the moment where original sin corrupted the human race in the first place. And we find this recorded again for us in Genesis 3, 5, and 6. And this is the lie of the serpent. For God knows, the devil says to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. When the eyes, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We see right here in the origins of our sinful nature principles that would now define every man who would be born to Adam and Eve and in the subsequent generations. They would believe the same lie that their forebears had believed, that there is no God who has the right to declare good and evil. In fact, we will pretend in our sin to be Him. You see, the real temptation wasn't just the luscious taste of fruit. It wasn't the way that that fruit would taste on Eve's tongue that drew her to, uh, con to oh, disobedience and to uh, follow the devil's lead. But instead it was something more subtle, more corrupting, and more tantalizing. And it was this false promise that your eyes, Eve, will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You would, will advance in your state of consciousness to render God obsolete, needless. If I'm as wise as God, I do not have to seek Him. If I know all things, I do not have to ask Him. If I can gain all things, I do not have to surrender to His ways and His means and ask in prayer. The relationship between man and God fundamentally changed at this point from one of submission to one of rebellion. I will do it by myself. I can. I will. I will rise up. I will take charge. I will control my destiny. I will determine good and evil. You will not tell me what to do. I will not listen to you. And so, when Eve ate of that fruit, it was symbolic of the substance of this sin, which was man denying God. And of course, Adam joined her in this. In Genesis 3, 5, and 6, we find man's first denial of God. He denies his sovereignty and asserts his own autonomous, that is, self-rule or independence. 
This, I submit to you, is important to remember, is not an academic thesis. It is not a scientific conclusion. This is the lie of our current society. Oh, we have looked across the landscape of all possible ideas and we have determined that it just isn't scientifically viable that there is a supernatural being that set this world in order. Therefore, we have concluded through the scientific method that there really is no God. Not that we wouldn't appreciate it if there was. There simply cannot be so by mathematics or whatever he claims as his authority. And so he does not exist and I, he, I therefore do not surrender to him. And religion is some archaic holdover from the unenlightened past. This is not the kind of denial that actually colors man's heart at the very root. What I just sh shared with you is a smokescreen. Man's denial of God is not an academic thesis. It is not a scientific conclusion, but it is an intrinsic, visceral, natural disposition. It is in his heart. You see, the fool hasn't said in his university that there is no God, although he does. But that's not the root of his denial. The fool has not said through the scientific method that there is no God, though he does. But again, that is not the basis or the root of his denial. The fool instead has said in his heart there is no God. We are God-haters first in our heart. And secondly, we are God-haters in our scientific, our academic, in our selfish pursuits of any kind. You see, a life that is governed by foolishness and God-hating of the heart is motivated to oppose Him at every turn. We are fundamentally disordered and perverted and crooked and dead in our trespasses and sins. Thus, uh, the Bible declares that every intention of our heart is evil continually. And this is the nature of man according to God. God, which is our second point. In, but meanwhile, under our first, God according to man uh, does not exist. But that is a foolish statement in his heart. Secondly, we find that man's, the nature of man's evil and sin is amplified by who he intends to destroy, who he makes his enemy. Notice again in verse 4. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? Here again is a telling pursuit and motive of sinful man. That is, man reveals that God is his enemy by what he sets his face against, how, who he declares war on, and what he hates in his heart. We see this in related texts all throughout the Bible. We see it in human history since the close of the canon. And these are testimonies that further document that the object of man's hatred and his anger and his animosity, what he is motivated to oppose, is indeed, ultimately speaking, God himself. But man does this through a proxy war. What is a proxy war? Well, a, war, a proxy war is fighting through some other means to get to an objective. I declare to you that wicked man hates the people of God in order to take out his anger and his hatred on God himself. You see, man was created in the image of God. And so it makes sense that man in his hatred of God would turn his anger 
and make war with the image of God. Thus, we see this all through culture. We see it all through the scriptures. We see it so common, in fact, that this idiom is used to describe the wickedness of of the human heart. Those who eat up my people as they eat bread. What could this mean? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 3. While you're turning there, I'll give you several other references briefly that you could mark down. Proverbs 30, verse 14. And also Habakkuk 3, verse 14. And as I mentioned, Isaiah 3, 14 as well. All refer to this notion or this idea, this scriptural principle of man turning his hatred and animosity as if to devour like bread the people or the purposes, you could say, of God. In the book of Isaiah, judgment is declared through the mouth of the prophet for this same type of behavior. And in chapter 3, verse 14, we read it as follows. I'll back up to uh, 13. The Lord has taken His place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of His people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. It is you who have devoured the vineyard again, 14. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. This again is this idea of devouring the poor, or as common as eating bread, turning your face and your heart and your intent and your anger against the people and purposes of God. I'll turn quickly over to us Proverbs, that reference I mentioned to you as well, just to underscore again by biblical reference and cross-reference the example uh, that we see here. Um, the leech has two daughters, I'll back up here uh, to verse 11. These are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are clean in their own eyes but are not washed of their filth. There are those how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives, and here's that term, to devour the poor from off the earth the needy from among mankind. So whatever could the authors be getting at here? Well, the poor in Scripture is a concept or a term that refers to the least by worldly measure. Who are the poor? They are the helpless and the least by worldly measure. Now included in this idea of the poor are those who are most often the brunt or take the, uh, yes, the, the brunt of injustice of wicked man is the poor and also the favored of the Lord or his people. Thus, those who are most likely to be uh, dealt with unjustly in this life by wicked man are the least by worldly means and the favored of the Lord. Think of Cain and Abel, one of the early sins and most horrible crimes right in Genesis on the heels of Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit. And what did Cain do to his brother? Well, in his jealousy, he turned himself and made war on the image of God and his brother, and the favor of the Lord was killed at the hand of Cain. This is what man is prone to do in his sin. 
He is prone to eat up the people of God or to turn himself against them, either by opposing the Lord and his people by all-out violence or by attitudes of the heart, namely, or in, uh, in summary, to make as a matter of lifestyle and shared ambition, opposing as the children of Satan, the offspring of the woman. Genesis 3 again comes to mind. As we go back to this passage, we see that there would be a new state of affairs following the curse of sin. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is war between the offspring of Satan, as it were, those who are allied with him, and the offspring of the woman. We see this today uh, in mit- taking shape in many different ways. The devil hates the offspring of the woman. The most vulnerable are often the, uh, the ones that are opposed most violently by the wicked and pagan powers that be. We think of the children that were slaughtered in Egypt when the favored people of God began to threaten the Pharaoh and grew numerous. And so he turned himself against the favorite of the Lord and began to slaughter the weakest and most helpless, the least by worldly measure among them. Even today, the whole scale Holocaust and the war waged on the womb, uh, in the womb today, is testimony to the same. This happened right before Christ was born. Herod, that agent of the wicked one, destroyed as he sought to eliminate the seed of the woman and destroy the Messiah who would usurp him. He sought to destroy every child under two years old in Bethlehem, as you remember that time. So it was then and so it is today that the wicked one declares war on the people of God and on the poor to devour them as it were, as common as they would eat their meal. So we see what God is according to man. God is something that he denies, yet foolishly so. God is the one who he sets his face against, and we see even in who man destroys that he reveals, that man reveals that God is his enemy. Thus, we have the picture of the wickedness of man. Now, secondly, this morning, the viewpoint of Psalm 53, man according to God. What about this kind of attitude, action, and behavior? What does God say of it? Well, in verses 2 and 3, we have a different viewpoint. This is God looking down from heaven on the children of man. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. There are two words for corrupt in the original Hebrew that appear in this psalm. Uh, They're both translated the same in my English translation here, but the second one has different shades of meaning in the original tongue. They are corrupt doing abominable iniquity, it says in 53.1. But later in verse 3, it says, They have fallen away together, they have become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. The first uh, idea of corruption is wickedness. It's a corruption that is identified by the things that the people do. 
It's the abominable iniquity that testifies to their wickedness, to their sinfulness of heart. The second kind of corruption is slightly different. It says, together they have become corrupt. And this is a picture of universal corruption or degeneration, a sort of mutual rot and spoil. Just like a milk jar in the fridge, if you lose your power for a number of days, and then you regained it, unbeknownst to you, you reached in and you took a drink, and then a white explosion uh, needs to be cleaned up as you taste that sour, curdled milk and you expel it from your taste buds as fast as possible and purge your mouth with water. Let me ask you this question. If you skimmed off the top of that milk, when you got to the bottom, do you think it would be good? No, of course not. We know that one taste of a jar of spoiled milk is enough proof that the whole jar is corrupt. In the same way, that in the original poetry, that's what this term corruption means. That there isn't just one or two that have a little bit of influence and others are innocent and they're caught up in this kind of chaotic um, interplay of the wicked and the just. But in some fundamental way, on some basic level, as far as the sin and the evil and the wickedness of man is concerned, man is like a jar of milk having, been, having become spoiled and soured. Together they have become corrupt. So what is man according to God? Well, in Psalm 53, we see declared to us that man is universally sinful. That there is no, not one that seeks after God, but all have become subject to the nature or this corrupt nature and in Adam are indeed sinfulness. Our double-mindedness, however, is revealed by our nature and the outworking of our human corruption. In other words, man according to God is not just universally sinful, but he is also foolishly, but in his uh, confession and orientation of his heart, he is also foolish. There is a universal foolishness about man. Uh, man. Man is described as a fool in verse 1 who says in his heart, there is no God. God looks down from heaven and he sees these children of man that there's none who understand. Later in this air of incredulity, the question is asked again in verse 4, have those who work evil no knowledge? Are they as dumb as a box of rocks? Are they absolutely corrupt and stupid? What can explain this kind of behavior? They eat up my people as they eat bread. What is the author getting at here? Well, not only is man sinful, but he is also double-minded in his sinfulness. There is a quote from Douglas Wilson in a, uh, a documentary which was a, a, a debate that he had with a famous atheist who has since passed on, Christopher Hitchens. And Christopher Hitchens declared that religion, Christianity and otherwise, was a scourge and a disease and a blight on mankind and it needed to be eradicated. He saw uh, religion as something that destroys man, including Christianity. And against this attitude, Wilson took a stand and there was one quote that was particularly telling and he said this, Atheism has two tenets. Number one, there is no God. And number two, I hate him. Atheism has two tenets. Number one, there is no God. 
Number two, I hate him. Now, you see the contradiction there, don't you? You see the foolishness, don't you? The fool says in his heart, there is no God, and then he makes as his chief enemy the people of God. So if there is no God, how do you identify those whom you hate? By the very one you say doesn't exist? This is the foolishness of unbelief. We reveal in our sin and in our orientation that we actually know that there is a God who rules in heaven. And we actually understand at some heart level that we will answer to him one day. But we so hate and despise that fact that we will come up with all kinds of complicated schemes to suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Even whole philosophical systems uh, in, inflict and corrupt like a poison and cancer the popular culture over time to try to come up with some excuse and to reset the terms of reality so that we can say there is no God. And so postmodernism comes with all its corruption and foolishness and men like Nietzsche declare that God is dead, namely that the reality of God's existence in the consciousness of people generally in the West really bears no weight and holds no sway anymore. There's another famous little quip or little quip I have on a t-shirt at home and uh, it simply says two quotes. The first is, God is dead, Nietzsche. And underneath it says, Nietzsche is dead, God. I like that quote because it reminds man in his foolishness and in his insanity, and Nietzsche spent the latter days of his life in literal insanity. That quote reminds us that while men make it our chief end and our sin to try to eradicate God from this world, our reality and consciousness, we die trying to kill him, and in the end we are judged in hell eternal, where his wrath, and all this of course assuming we do not repent, where his wrath and his glory are revealed eternally against the sinfulness and corruption of man, proving for all time that he rules and reigns in the heavens and no one denies him without paying the ultimate price. Man, according to God, is universally sinful. He is also foolish. This was a message that we hear, yes, in Psalm 53, but we've already heard in the Scriptures in the days of Noah, Genesis chapter 5. Turn there with me for a moment, if you would. Genesis 5. There's this time uh, where the world, I'm sorry, Genesis 6, where the world uh, becomes corrupt and the Lord superintending sovereignly over history is going to intervene in judgment and salvation. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And man was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. I am sorry that I have made him. Hopeful note, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Continue, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence. From them, behold, I will destroy them with the earth. 
Turn to Romans chapter 3. On into the New Testament, it is the consistent testimony of Scripture, the universal wickedness, the foolishness, and the original sin of mankind. Citations such as the ones we've already read form this powerful statement, gospel foundations, that is identifying the sinfulness of us, both Jews and Greeks, everyone in fact, as Paul writes to the church and to us, Romans 3.9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Do those words sound familiar? Again, Psalm 53, Psalm 14, Genesis 6 are all echoed. Their throat is an open grave, verse 13, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul compiles nine citations from Psalm 14, from Psalm 53, from Psalm 5, from Jeremiah 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10. Proverbs 1, Isaiah 59, Psalm 36, to make his point. And thus in so doing in this anthology we see from the testimony of Scripture that man according to God is in dire need of salvation. Not a small correction, not a helpful additive, not an energy drink for an already self-motivated life, not a little extra, but indeed a resurrection is needed. Thirdly this morning, Outcomes accordingly. Viewpoints and outcomes of Psalm 53. Number one, we've considered God according to man. Secondly, we've considered man according to God. And thirdly, this morning, let's consider the outcomes. There are two outcomes I submit to you. First, there are those who remain in their sin and are scattered and destroyed. And secondly, there are those who are gathered and saved. Gathered and saved, you ask? Haven't you labored for the first half of this message, Pastor, telling us that all mankind are sinful? That everyone without exception is corrupt to his very core? How can there be any that are gathered and saved? Well, this assumes a subset, that is a separate uh, gathering of people or a separate group of people that are set apart from the corruption of man, that are indeed saved. And this is pictured in Psalm 53 at the very end. Oh, that salvation for who? Israel would come out of where? Zion. When God restores the fortunes of who? His people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. What do these terms refer? That is Israel, Zion, his people, Jacob, and again Israel. All these are covenant identities of the elect, of a subset of those who are saved out of the corrupt man, who are regenerate, born again, who are resurrected, who are given a new heart, who are new creatures, who have been given the gift of faith, granted the gift of repentance, have turned to God as their healer, their savior, their propitiation, their prophet, priest, king, and sacrifice in faith, in Psalm 53, of His coming Messiah and in faith of His Messiah who has come for all who are in Christ post-incarnation. This is 
an amazing truth. It is illustrated, it's inferred in Psalm 53 with the people of God. These covenant words that distinguish those who are set apart for His will and purposes. We are safe if we are Israel. We have salvation in a certain place in Zion. And these represented the terms and conditions of favor with a holy God. Like the temple and the tabernacle and the worship that took place in those places. Like the geographic centrality of Jerusalem. Like the particular calling of national Israel. All these were pictures of those who would be hid in Christ and who would be restored to their fortunes that were lost in the garden. When God restores the fortunes of His people, let Jacob, His people rejoice. Let Israel again, His people, be glad. Praise the Lord that something has dramatically happened to reorient the fundamental nature of man in the hearts of the redeemed. This is the only way to account for the plural outcomes. That is, that not all will be scattered and destroyed, but there will be a subset, there will be some who are gathered and saved. This is amazing. This is the gospel in Psalm 53. Let us consider first the outcome of scattering and destruction we read of this again in verse 5. These are they in great terror where there is no terror. What does that mean? Well, the state of craven fear, if you will, of the unbeliever will reach a place where they will be afraid of even their own shadow. Since man is unsuccessful in his attempt to deny God and only proves himself a fool, as he approaches his point of reckoning, his insanity will be known. And he will jump and start at the smallest little thing. And the closer he gets to that great white throne, and I imagine a procession of all who are born arriving before that court of justice in the next life, as his footsteps approach that throne, every emanation of the glory of God Every sound from the holy throne room of the Almighty sets him at edge and causes him to twitch and to shudder and to quake and to groan because he knows he is standing in the presence of holiness where no sin will be tolerated and his just end will be to be scattered and destroyed. Meanwhile, on the other side, the sheep gather. On the one side, the goats. On the other side, the sheep. And these are, are they who have found a refuge in Zion. And though they have been the victim of this warring serpent and have been chased like David as a fugitive across the landscape of persecution, they arrive confidently one day before the throne of judgment, knowing, feeling, seeing the drenched white robes due to Christ's blood draping their resurrected form as they walk before the bar of glory. They will be gathered and saved. Turn with me to Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel, again, as with many of the prophets, the picture of the nations juxtaposed with Israel serves to illustrate gospel principles. In Isaiah 36, there is judgment declared on the enemies of God's people, Remember, those who would make war against those who are leased by worldly measure and the favored of the Lord, who in the heart of Cain murder those who they were jealous of. 
So thus says the Lord in verse 4, To the mountains and the hills, the ravines and valleys, the desolate wastes and deserted cities, which have become prey and a derision to the rest of the nations all around. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely I have spoken in my hot jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom who gave my land to them as a possession with wholehearted joy and utter contempt that they might make its pasture lands a prey. Does that recall those who devour the poor or eat up my people like bread? This is judgment now proclaimed on those who fall into this camp. They will be scattered and destroyed. Verse 6, Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains, to the hills, to the ravines and valleys, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealous wrath, because you have suffered the reproach of the nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I swear that the nations that are around you shall themselves suffer reproach. But as we continue, we see this picture picture of those who are scattered and destroyed giving way to the redeemed, those who are called and set apart, those who receive the salvation of the Lord. And this comes in a different picture in, verse, in chapter 37. It says in verse 1, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And He led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. Behold, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I said, O Lord, you know. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel prophesied as he was directed Verse 11, then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are clean cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel, you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, I will put my spirit within you, you shall live, and I will place you in my own land, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, I will do it, declares the Lord. This is a powerful picture of salvation versus judgment. Whereas the enemies of God are scattered and destroyed, those who are the favored of the Lord Those who have received His salvation, who trust in His Messiah, are gathered and saved. And though in this life we go through circumstances that leave us wanting, persecuted, and even dry and dead, God has the power to resurrect from the deadness of our sin nature a people unto Himself. These are the gathered and saved. One more reference, since we're touching on some greater scriptural context in Genesis chapter 6, we see the gathering or the scattering and the destruction is going to come by way of a flood because of the universal corruption and wickedness of man. We also find in verse 8, as we've mentioned, that there was Noah, who was an exception, who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord has special instructions for Noah. He says in 6.14, 
Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. Length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is in earth, on the earth, shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. The last reference this morning in closing is in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 3, these pictures of the Old Testament are brought forward in their fulfillment in Christ. Those who have escaped the scattering and destruction to be gathered and saved are identified, and they're identified with the very source, the very ground of their salvation. It says in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. The picture of salvation, the gathering and saving of the people of God is republished in baptism. 1 Peter 3.18-22 illustrates, it, it uh, defines for us the gathering and salvation in and through our ark, if you will, Jesus Christ. Thus, in the picture of baptism, we see that like Noah and his family, we pass through the waters of judgment and are restored unto our fortunes in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior who suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. The final refrain in Psalm 53, in light of the promise that was prophesied in symbolic and sometimes just a, just a little a smaller form, if you will, in Psalm 53, the final refrain is to praise the Lord and to worship, to rejoice and to be glad. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad, because God is bringing salvation to, for Israel. It is coming out of Zion, and God will restore His fortunes to His people. At some point, if you have extra time, you could turn to uh, Luke chapter 15. There's three parables that speak of gathering and salvation. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. Come to, we've come to know it's the prodigal son. At the end of each one of those parables is a call to rejoice. And Luke 15, 7, and Luke 15, 10, and in Luke 15, 32. And let me read just one of those passages for you. That always touches my heart. This morning as I'm turning there, at the close of this message, we will celebrate a baptism today. 
and we will go from here to the waters of baptism and we will celebrate the salvation of one soul today, Marley, being brought through the waters of judgment by the saving power of Jesus Christ, her Lord. How are we to respond to such a thing in light of what we've learned today? Well, Luke 15, verse 10 is helpful in that, re in that regard. After Jesus declares his parable of the lost coin, he says, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let us transition in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joyful privilege of beholding the salvation of even one sinner. I pray for all who are in Christ today that you would bring us back to the joy of our own salvation as we behold at baptism this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you have gathered us, that you have saved us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that though our sin was gross and wicked and corrupted us to our core, that you have the power of resurrection in your hand. And the salvation that belongs to our God is sufficient to save and to keep and to equip and to sanctify and to send us into this world to share the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We thank you for Marley and her salvation and we thank you that you are glorified in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, if I could hold your attention, I've asked Jean and Marissa to come up and to share with you briefly, or Jean, if you want to, that's fine as well, the testimony of Marley coming to Christ. And in a few moments, we'll give you instructions as for the next phase. So, um, <clears throat> It's a great joy for me to be here this morning and celebrate with, with all of you and with Marley and, and with the angels, as Ken just said. Um, just a short, brief uh, testimony here of, of how Marley came to this point. Um, in our daily devotions um, for probably a good year, um, Marley would make little comments here or there, like, I hope someday I can be a Christian. Um, there would be points when she had disobeyed um, and we would talk with her and, and pray with her, she would, would say, I don't want to be bad anymore. Why am I bad? Um, and those were all good opportunities for us to share um, a lot of the line of this message this morning that, uh, that we're all born in sin and it's our nature. Um, but uh, Jesus calls us to repentance. Um, so I, I guess uh, one day... Um, during devotions, um, it just seemed like the Lord had changed something in her, and um, she she said something to Marissa that really sparked something to us. Marley, do you remember what you said? Uh, I said after devotions, I said, um, I want to be a light for Jesus. And that just, it had changed from someday I hope to do this to uh, I want to be a light for Jesus. So this, I was at work at the time, this was during morning devotions, but Marissa called me um, and I got to talk with her for a good 20 minutes and we explained uh, what sin is and um, why we need to 
repent of sin and um, what uh, what how our sins are forgiven. And um, so she asked if she could pray, and and she did, and she asked Jesus to give her a, a new heart and to forgive her for her sins. Um, and so we just thank God for that, that he's called her out. Um, and we've seen a lot of fruit since then, um, just a lot of changes. She's very, uh, very Christ-minded now um, in comparison to before. I know um, in devotion, sometimes she'll even pray that someday Piper can, can be born again. And uh, she prays for, you know, orphans that we see in videos, um, things that Marissa and I don't even think to pray for. So it's been really just a blessing to see, um, to see the Lord changing her heart and to see the fruit of repentance in her. Um, I just had a scripture I wanted to read. This is from John um, 7.37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he had said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we just give you thanks this morning, Lord. We thank you, Father, that you've glorified your Son. Lord, we thank you for the payment for our sins, Lord, and we thank you for the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you that you've called Marley out, Lord, that you've poured out her spirit on her, Lord. And we just uh, give you praise this morning, Lord, for eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>